Father, we are the sheep of your pasture, and pray today that you would lead us beside still waters and good green grass and feed us. Uh, Holy Spirit, we're confident that you will use the word which you wrote to uh, correct us, to encourage us, to uh, direct us in the way of love today. And pray for each one who's gathered here, we'd have ears to hear. And we pray this in your powerful name, Christ. Amen. Amen. So we are going through a study on the perfections of love, the descriptions of love from 1 Corinthians 13. We went through uh, hope first, then we went through faith, now love, and we're winding down. I think we'll hopefully get through three today, and then we'll do the last three next week. And then Brock and I have talked, and we're planning on uh, going through the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Since we've done love, let's just go ahead and do the fruits of the Holy Spirit. We've not done that. Uh, yet as a, as a series or have recently anyway so that'll be that'll be coming next so today and, and next week on love and then to the fruits of the spirit there might be um, looking at maybe showing one more of the videos on that Scott Mayo we had one of those two weeks ago he's got a uh, series on the centrality of love and counseling which I thought really excellent learned a lot from that so we might throw one of those in there so let's just give you a heads up on what's ahead I love to share some some choice morsels that I get from this book Maximum Impact by Wayne Mack which we have in our resource center and I've not quoted or read anything from Charles Spurgeon yet in this class that I know of at least on love so everybody's got to check out what Spurgeon says but Charles Spurgeon wrote this in reference to some, said this to some preachers or those who were in ministry. So I think the application is we're all in, in the ministry of encouraging one another and counseling one another, discipling one another. He, this is from his book that was entitled Charles Spurgeon's book, An All-Around Ministry. He said, Assuredly, we must abound in love. It is a hard thing for some preachers to saturate and perform their perfume their sermons with love, for their natures are hard or cold or coarse or selfish. We are none of us all that we ought to be, but some are specially poverty-stricken in point of love. They do not naturally care for the souls of men, as Paul puts it. To all, especially to the harder sort, I would say be doubly earnest as to holy love, without this, you will be no more than sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Love is power. I thought that was interesting. The Holy Spirit, for the most part, works by our affection. Love men to Christ. Faith accomplishes much, but love is the actual instrument by which faith works out its desires in the name of the Lord of love. And I am sure that until we heartily love our work and love the people with whom we are working, we shall not accomplish much. So that was a really good encouragement about the centrality of love in, in ministry that we have to love. Our work must be, our ministry must be perfumed with love, as Charles Spurgeon said. Always a good use of words. Uh, illustrates well. So looking at our lesson from today, we're looking at uh, the first two that kind of go together. So I've got them together under your outline. Perfection number 10 and 11 is love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. A couple of other ways that that was translated. And does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Legacy Standard Bible. <coughs> Now the first one there, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but finds its joy in the truth. So another uh, translation helps bring some clarity to what the truth is about those, that verse. So the word unrighteousness, so if we're not rejoicing at wrongdoing or not rejoicing at unrighteousness, what is unrighteousness? What should we not be rejoicing in? It's literally the condition of not being right, whether with God according to the standard of His holiness and righteousness, or with man according to the standard of what man knows to be right by his conscience. I like Wayne Mack's description of it. Wrongdoing or unrighteousness refers to any action, any speech, any thought, any desire, or any event that is not right in the sight of God. 
unrighteousness is anything contrary to God's will as it is revealed in the Bible. Well, if we're not to rejoice in it, so we know what we're not to rejoice in, what does rejoice mean? The word rejoice means to be joyful or glad or delighted. We're to find pleasure in something. In Philippians 4.4, 4, Paul said that we are to rejoice in the Lord. So we're not to rejoice in righteousness. What are we to rejoice in? We're to rejoice in the Lord. This means that we are to find our joy and pleasure and gladness in Christ Jesus. So, I think this is a, a good summary of what it means when it says love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. So love does not take pleasure in, delight in, or find joy or gladness in wrongdoing, evil, sin, or unrighteousness. So I want to look at some scriptures that address this. So we want to read the, the Second Thessalonians two. I know it's on your sheet here, but can somebody read that out loud for us? For this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now, speaking of the end times and context, <coughs> and those who. Uh, have pleasure in unrighteousness. Paul says they don't believe the truth. They actually rejoice in unrighteousness. They will be they'll be condemned. Somebody got Romans twelve nine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Yeah, in contrast to rejoicing in um, unrighteousness, we're to abhor it and to actually hold fast to, the, to those things that are good. Somebody got Proverbs 24, 17. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles. Kind of ouch. I don't know if, if uh, you've had that test thrown at you, but there's something perverse and depraved about us, isn't there, that we kind of take delight in somebody who we don't like? They fail. What's that, Perry? He got what he was coming to. Yeah. We'll get to that. That's coming. We'll hear later. Yeah. That's our that's our natural way of looking at that, but that's actually kind of taking pleasure in his fall, his sin, his unrighteousness. Proverbs seventeen five. Somebody got that? who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. Yeah. Who's glad at calamity? Which could take in a number of things. But again, it's, it's really getting at that, being glad at things that are unrighteous. And Romans one thirty two, who wants to read that? And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death. They not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. What does that sound like? <clears throat> Bingo. Yeah. Sounds like today. Where do you see this hearty approval for those practicing righteousness occurring? We just had a whole month of it last month. That's right. Yeah. A subset of those reaction videos on like YouTube and different things are people rejoicing and sensationalizing things that are unrighteous. Yeah, we have parades for unrighteousness all kinds of unrighteousness and we're living in a time where the world's pressuring us to approve of things that are sinful that are abhorrent to God that are abominations to him and so love doesn't take pleasure in that it does the opposite 
it rejoices in the truth. It has no love or no delight or no gladness in the unrighteous acts of men. So I think that Romans one thirty two is a verse that really is central to how we apply this verse today. Is we don't we don't approve of or glad at glad at or take delight in the uh, hearty approval that's given to those who practice unrighteousness. And that's a distinguishing factor of us today. It's how we're salt and light. Certainly getting to. Uh, to live that out. Uh, maybe think of, of Matthew uh, 24, 12. Talks about uh, because iniquity will abound, the love of many will grow cold. There's this uh, kind of frog in the hot water kind of thing where there's a lot of iniquity. It's abounding. It's increasing. It can cause our love to grow cold. It can cause us to be neutral somewhat as opposed to pouring it. So I think there's there's application for that. I thought Wayne Mack did a really good job. I've got some of them down here of how um, we can rejoice in wrongdoing or how we shouldn't rejoice in wrongdoing. Be a better way to put it. Love does not rejoice in personally doing what the Bible would call evil or sin. So, I've heard people say before, you know, I, I love my sin. That's, that's not love. That's loving something that is sin against God. Is, is, that's not love. Love does not rejoice in encouraging others to do what is wrong in the sight of God. So, the application of that could be you're dating, you're a young man, are you leading your girl into sin encouraging her to do that um, that's not love that's selfishness that's self-love love does not enjoy watching others do evil okay that's got a lot of application there like turning the TV on secretive at night viewing of others doing things that they should not be doing could go on and on Love does not get pleasure out of seeing others have evil done to them. Again, see that all, all the time. Love avoids being abusive in any way, whether it be physical, verbal, or emotional. Love doesn't take pleasure in pornography or sexual immorality. Love can say with Job when something unpleasant happens to someone else, I have not rejoiced at the ruin of him who hated me or exulted when evil overtook him. I think that one's a good test for all of us. Like there is that secret, yeah, he got what he deserved, he had it coming to him. <coughs> Uh, love does not enjoy exposing the sins and faults of others. I don't have that written down there, I don't think, but I thought that one was good. Love does not enjoy exposing the sins and faults of others. Love does not glorify or justify evil, does not make wrong seem right, does not call evil good. That's the culture we live in. Love does not hope someone will make a mistake, suffer loss, or fall into sin. So it's many applications of how we are not to rejoice in our own doing. So perfection number 11 is the flip side of love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Paul states it in the positive. Love rejoices with the truth. So a question, what truth is Paul referring to. What do you guys think the truth that Paul is referring to here?
truth is used <clears throat> multiple ways in Scripture. So, uh, any thoughts on what he's referring to? Sometimes the Bible uses the, the word truth in reference to Jesus as, as you mentioned in John 14, uh, 6. Uh, John 17, 17, thy word is truth. Will? I was just going to agree that God's word, yeah. his commands, yeah. all of the things he's commanded us to do. Yeah. And also sinners saved by grace, the truth that we're sinners that have been given a new heart in Christ. Yeah, so I think it's the Word of God and it's all the things that He has taught through His Word, instructed us. That's that's true. Uh, the word of truth is used in 2 Timothy 2.15, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of truth. So it's the Word of God is uh, Christ Himself, uh, the truth. I think Going off what Will said, I think you could say it's also uh, the commands of Scripture. Those are the truth. And it's somebody who lives that out as something we should rejoice in. Somebody who's living out uh, the Scriptures and, and living in obedience to that. That truth can be considered honesty, sincerity, accuracy, keeping with uh, reality versus falsehood so something that is true is not pretense or false it's actually true I think you can find that in Ephesians 425 where it talks about no longer lie but but speaking the truth anybody else any thoughts on that what truth what truth is and what Paul might be referring to I think that one of the things that he's probably referring to here is sometimes the Bible uses the word truth to refer to the progress and practice of truth. It's kind of a synonym for righteousness. So we'll get to some verses here in a little bit. I think that will that will kind of flesh that out. But I wanted to, to read a description by Albert Barnes on the truth that I found on Precept Austin that I like. The word truth here stands opposed to iniquity. It means virtue, piety, goodness. It does not rejoice in the vices, but in the virtues of others. So it's not being glad about someone's vices. It's actually rejoicing in their virtues or their progress of faith, their, their obedience to the truth. It is pleased. It rejoices when they do well. It's pleased when those who differ from us conduct themselves in any manner in such a way as to please God and to advance their own reputation and happiness. They who are under the influence of what love, of that love rejoice that good is done and the truth is defended and advanced, ever may be the instrument. Rejoice that others are successful in their plans of doing good, though they do not act with us. Rejoice that other men have a reputation well earned for virtue and purity of life, though they may differ from us in opinion and may be connected with a different denomination. They do not rejoice when other denominations of Christians fall into error or when their plans are blasted or when they are calumniated. Okay? So, uh, I did not know what that word meant. Anybody in here know what that meant? Calumny. What's that? Calumny, like malice. Yeah, it, it means to make false or defamatory statements have malice towards someone. And when they're made malice towards and oppressed and reviled by whomsoever good is done or wheresoever, it is to them a matter of rejoicing. And by whomsoever evil is done or wheresoever, it is to them a matter of grief. So I think the contrast he lays out is really good. The reason of this is that all sin, error, and vice will ultimately ruin the happiness of anyone. And as love desires their happiness, it desires that they should walk in the ways of virtue and is grieved when they do not. And loving someone in that way 
I think takes the Holy Spirit, like legitimately being grieved at their sin and legitimately rejoicing at their virtue and their progress in the faith. That's love, and that takes the Holy Spirit to do that. So we want to read 3 John verses 3 and 4. I think we get a picture of what this rejoicing in the truth means. Somebody have that? Want to read that? For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in truth. Wow. Amen. Amen. That's John, an old man, writing. I'm so happy. I have so much joy when I hear that my little children, sheep of the Lord, are walking in the truth. I think that's true if you're a if you're an elder, if you're a pastor, if you're a Bible study teacher, if you're anyone in the family of God, that you should have great, no greater joy than to hear that the family of God, the children of God, are walking in the truth. We should rejoice in that. I noticed I don't have the reference down. On a couple of these, for what is our hope or our joy or crown or boasting before our Lord Jesus that is coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. So, Second Thessalonians 2.12 maybe. Um, my bad on that one. Is it First Thessalonians? Okay, all right. First Thessalonians two, nineteen through twenty. Okay, thank you, Heather. So I write and edit this, so it's all on me. So I don't. I want to own that one for sure, and I think the next one's the same. But anyway, here Paul is talking about what do we take joy in? What do we boast in? In a, in a positive way. Um, the Thessalonian church was a church known for its love. In fact, at one point he said, I know that you know that you ought to love one another, but just do it more and more. They were such a church of love, and he was commending them. I noticed on the next one, I also did not have that down. I think that might be Second John. So you want to look that up, but I'll read it here. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. I think that's 2 John like 5 and 6, 4. 2 John verse 4, Brock says. Okay. At the end of the book of Romans in chapter 16, does anybody know right offhand what Paul does in that chapter, the last chapter of Romans? He mentions 33 people. And they're all commendations. He was taking joy in these people in the church who were doing uh, ministry, who were um, obedient, who were progressing in faith. So we, we see that uh, the apostles rejoiced in, in the truth, in people being obedient to, to the Lord. It's, it's all over. Uh, even the Corinthian church, the one that we're studying in context here, uh, Paul starts out with a commendation of their position in Christ, even though they were they were a mess. Uh, typically, there would be a positive greeting of love and commendation at the beginning, then the exhortations and corrections, and then at the very end, kind of the sandwich approach, come back in with some more commendation. So how do people, some questions here at the bottom of page three, how do people sometimes excuse or justify their taking pleasure in sin or evil? 
That's your definition of truth, your definition of sin. That's the way you see it. That's the way you interpret it. It's not hurting anybody else. It's just it's just what I do on my own. Yeah. It's not hurting anybody. It's not hurting you. Leave me alone. Yeah. Not hurting anybody. I think sometimes as believers too, though, we can convince ourselves that the thing we're doing though is innocent. I mean, along with what Alan. Mm -hmm. Find a reason that it's not really. There's a uniqueness to my situation here. Maybe. Yeah. Heard that one recently. Yeah. I think uh, something I've noticed is, you know, the current political discourse being what it is, that occasionally someone or a group of people will come along and they'll be on, like, they'll be on your team. They'll be fighting for the things that you believe in. And that, so you agree with them, but. You know the way they they go about arguing those points is vulgar and it's hateful, but they're on your team, so you just kind of you know you still allow it to happen. I mean, there's countless you know people recently that have come up that everyone's like, oh well, they're you know they're saying the right things, but the their lifestyle and their the things that they do behind closed doors is just abominable to yeah. the Lord. That's a dirty underbelly of the political world that you get into if you're a Christian. Ugh. Pretty tough. They had what's coming to them kind of thing. And you can almost like I'm glad they that happened to them because they really deserved that or they had that coming to them. Um, Thou shalt not judge. As, well, who am I to say? Kind of thing. <coughs> So here's some personal application question too. How often did you take pleasure in sin this last week? Is there a particular sin that you take pleasure in? I'm not asking anybody to divulge that uh, because we believe in number three, love always protects it covers sin, doesn't expose them. Now we'll get to, to what that means here in the next one. But How do you respond? I think this is really important today even, as we're going through this lesson. How do you respond when you find yourself rejoicing in iniquity? So I think that is the uh, crux of biblical counseling is putting off and putting on. And So is there justification of where you might be rejoicing in iniquity, or is there self-evaluation, self-correcting, self-counseling, and like, I want to put it off, and I want to put on, put off rejoicing in any iniquity, I'm going to put on rejoicing in those things that are true. So here's a question I do want your response on. What are practical ways we can rejoice in the truth? less of the junk that will get in mm -hmm. and we'll you know, give the word space and the spirit the, the space to kind of convict us of sins that we're, we are rejoicing in um, sin that we're not even aware of anymore because we're so dull to it mm -hmm. yeah. I think too when we studied Ephesians last year you know the main thing was the unity of the body and we're being built up in the spiritual house and so when you rejoice in the sin of someone else or the fall of someone in the body you're hurting yourself you know, because it hurts the whole body and so just remembering that especially as we're trying to live this life together 
You know, that's the goal is that we're building each other up into the likeness of Christ. Mm-hmm. Well, when one falls, I may take look at it. Of course, God can use it as a structural discipline for that person. And that repentance of that new fallen brother, you can rejoice in the repentance, but you can't rejoice in the fall. Mm-hmm. But you can rejoice. You know, you've seen this, you've confronted this individual, and he just will not respond to confrontation. And then his sin finds him out. And it's not rejoicing, but you're praising God to, that God found his sin out and found him out. Mm-hmm. And then when the repentant heart comes, then you really rejoice. Yeah. I think that's spot on, both what you're saying, and I think that goes to the Ephesians 3 model where we are to speak the truth in <coughs> love, and then the purpose of that, so we may grow all things into Him who is the head, Christ, uh, which every part does its share, causing growth in the body for the edifying of itself in love. So I think there, is a great, there should be a great influence or a great uh, commendation put on true repentance and building people up who have put off and are putting on. I think there's, we can rejoice in true repentance, rejoice in their progress in putting on righteousness. Sometimes I think in the biblical counseling, um, not, this isn't a, a personal or a, even a blanket, and some, I just think it's, it's easy to, to be the one who is grieved at the sin and correcting and exhorting and not commending uh, obedience and truthfulness enough. I don't know if I'm making sense there. I think there has to be good balance there, so I think that's one way we can practically do that. The apostles did that in their letters over and over again. Do you have something, Maria? Okay, I thought your hand was up. Okay. I have, <clears throat> so I was watching a family who we've seen for a while who really wasn't training their kids well, and then as I was talking to the kids and realizing that though they've made professions of faith, they're not living it at all. Um, and my first response was, of course, like parents have been terrible. And then really realized that what I need to do is be grieved and just be on my knees in prayer for them often. And so I've just started, that's what I've done. And then it just makes your heart soft towards them. Mm-hmm. It makes conversations easier when you're with them because you really do care. You really do love them. You really do want them to be with you in heaven someday mm-hmm. where you can say, all these years I did pray. And, you know. That's a tenderness towards souls that we're talking about and we need to have as we minister to one another. Yeah. It's a practical application, Bridget. Thanks. I think taking true service to this is part of this and not doing it for your your gain from the service or your he took on a form of a servant and emptied himself for you that he would die for you while you were an enemy to him he didn't rejoice when you were an enemy to him he was grieving for you and wanted to restore you to the father that's uh, that that's service should be coming from a place of a practical way of are you really asking to serve someone and truly do it out of reverence to Christ as Ephesians 5 <coughs> talks about yeah yeah and he relates that back to love and then goes off into mm-hmm and I think Paul really points that out practically for us too in Philippians 4, 8 and 9 where he talks about thinking on those things that are true, that are of a good report, that are lovely. Those are practical ways instead of thinking on iniquity and righteousness. Okay, let's move on to the last one we're going to cover today. I'm trying to break this into about 15-minute slots and we're getting there. So perfection number 12. 
Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's from 1 Corinthians 13, 7. So love bears all things. But yet at the end of that verse, it says love endures all things. It sounds similar. So what is this word? I mean, Paul's not going to teach the same thing twice in the same sentence like that. So I have to admit, I learned some things from studying this particular verse, this particular fruit or perfection of love. What do you think bears all things means? Does that mean you endure everything, like it says later, or what? What does that mean? Well, I think it's described fairly well by some of the, the notes here that Precept Austin had and one from John MacArthur. The word actually means a thatch or roof or covering of a building. So love covers or protects is a good way to begin to think about what that means. It means to cover closely, to protect by covering, and then to conceal, and then by covering to bear up under. At the core of its meaning, it denotes an activity or state which blocks entry from without or exit from within. This is love protecting and concealing where possible and as much as possible. So authentic agape love continually seeks to cover and protect. And many commentators think that the international version, which sometimes we knock a little bit, probably got it right here. Love always protects. So, uh, protects the object that is loved, and for husbands, this would apply specifically, especially to our wives. Uh, in general, love protects other people. It doesn't broadcast bad news. It goes a second mile to protect another person's reputation. That's a strong statement. I think that gets to the practical application of what Paul's talking about here. Which, by the way, wasn't happening in the Corinthian church. They were full bore, disunified, fight was on. Love doesn't point out every flaw of the ones you love. Love doesn't criticize in public. Then MacArthur really, I thought, did a good job of communicating. Basically means to cover or to support and therefore to protect. Love bears all things by protecting others from exposure ridicule or harm. So if you're aware of information that could be embarrassing or could harm someone, you're going to protect that. Genuine love does not gossip or listen to gossip. Even when a person is certain, love tries to correct it with the least possible harm, hurt and harm to the guilty person. And I love that. The least possible hurt and harm to the guilty person. Love never protects sin. It's important to understand, but it's anxious to protect the sinner. So there's a, I'm not protecting sin, but I want to protect this person as much as possible. Fallen human nature has the opposite inclination. There is perverse pleasure in exposing someone's faults and failures. As already mentioned, that is what makes gossip appealing. The Corinthians cared little for the feelings or welfare of fellow believers is every person for himself. Like the Pharisees, they paid little attention to others except when those others were failing or sinning. Wow, that's an algae. Man's depravity causes him to rejoice in the depravity of others. It's that depraved pleasure that sells magazines and newspapers, um, true confessions alike. It's the same sort of pleasure that makes children tattle on brothers and sisters. Ah, I can, they got in trouble. I'm going to get them in trouble. <clears throat> Love that kind of thing. Whether to feel self-righteous by exposing others, another sin or to enjoy that sin vicariously, we all are tempted to take a certain kind of pleasure in the sins of others. Love has no part in that. It does not expose or exploit, gloat or condemn. It bears. It does not bear. Understanding the difference in the two, two words. <clears throat> so some interesting scriptures here hatred stirs up strife but love covers all offenses that's the 
the point of this verse, this particular uh, attribute of love. Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. Proverbs 17, 9. Peter repeats a lot of this in the New Testament. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Good sense makes one slow to anger and it is, it is his glory to overlook an offense. Proverbs 19.11 It's an often used verse in my own life. What should I really take offense at? It's a glory to overlook an offense. So I think there's Christians should be, true believers should be rarely legitimately offended. Rarely. Was it really God's glory and God's, God's name that was being hurt here or is it just my person and my feelings? We should rarely be legitimately offended. It's actually a glory to overlook an offense. So somebody's going to ask, I'm anticipating, I asked this question myself, do, do these scriptures mean that we should just overlook all transgressions and offenses in a person's life? Why or why not? Well, well taught Flint Hills Bible Church people. <laughs> what do you think? If there's a sin in their actions, it needs to be dealt with. Yeah. Make any scriptures to to chart our course forward in a situation like this? Matthew 18, fancy says, verse 15, for other sins. Yeah. Galatians 6 1. Yeah. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Yeah, Galatians 6, 1 and 2, which have here on your sheet. Those are that's a if there are two verses in scripture that I think best succinctly describe our ministry towards one another when there's sin involved, it's 1 Thessalonians 5 14, and then it's Galatians 6. One and two and three as well. I particularly like Galatians six one because it, it deals with when <coughs> you go to someone, it's if someone's caught in a sin. Which means this may not be there's a line here somewhere, there's a principle, like is this a one time one off? Kind of thing, or is this person caught in it? Like it's repeated. They're they're in a trap. They keep doing it. So there's that's a key in that verse. It's caught in a sin. And then it talks about how you're supposed to do it. Restore what you're supposed to do. Restore that person to spirit-led living, and you do that gently. So it gives you everything. I I, I love that particular verse, Galatians six one and two. Another one that, that I think helps us here, like when do you, when you go to someone, when you not overlook offense, when do you actually go to someone? James 5, 19 through 20. Uh, this is a verse that we would often use in a setting where we're bringing church discipline to a public, in a public way. This is a section of verses that talks about, my brothers, if anyone among you wonders from the truth, so we're talking about somebody who's wandered from the truth and is not living a truth-filled life. And someone brings him back. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So you want that person's sins to be covered by the Lord Jesus Christ, bringing him back to the truth. Another good verse to determine when do you go, when do you not. Well, a little more to that. What are some principles to consider when deciding to cover or lay bare another's offense, sin, or perceived transgression? Because it's a pattern. Mm -hmm. Like you said, as opposed to a one-off. Yeah. 
observe pattern there. Uh, somebody may snap at you, and I'm like, wow, oh, like the way they did that. That's repeated. You have a person's life is characterized by it at this point. It seems like they're really caught in that sin. Guarding your own heart when you dream this, because there's a lot of self come out. You can just elevate yourself. Mm -hmm. When you do confront, and that can come across self-righteous way bad. And so guarding your heart and come alongside and bear your alongside with someone. I think that's they'll feel that better. Mm -hmm. That's a kind of a mindset. I don't know if it's a principle, but it's a I think that uh, one of the least applied but most important in this situation is have you applied Matthew 7 to your own life? What did Jesus say before you go try to take the speck out of your brother's eye? Yeah. So, if you're a, a sin inspector, you see sin in other people's lives, you better be undergoing the same thing personally before you take the speck out of your brother's eye, take the plank out of your own eye. I think it's the least practiced um, <clears throat> scripture of those who are uh, correctors, those of us who are in that ministry of correction, which we should be. But it's, it's the most sanctifying thing. When you prepare to go to talk to somebody, you should be sanctified first by examining your own life and taking out any plank that may be involved. So I think that's a principle. Before you decide to go lay somebody else's sin bare, have you done that yourself? Anybody else have anything? John, I've also seen that misused where you don't, like, if you say anything, then you aren't loving. So it's like an extreme other end. Mm -hmm. Where Jesus said we are to judge righteously, yeah. um, we are to use the word of God to rightly divide the word of God and know the truth. Um, so it goes, you know, you have to have that balance of truth. I heard it. I think it was here in one of the videos. It said that truth is like the good soil that love goes, grows up into a beautiful mm -hmm. tree, protection. So yeah. you have to have that truth without it you're going to just have love is love like the Presbyterian Church advertised last month on their billboard mm -hmm. said love is love so mm -hmm. you have to have that true balance speaking the truth in love mm -hmm. it's our mission mm -hmm. uh, I've said before the lady at the Shepherds Conference you said at this church we teach truth and we love people that really is, is it so if we do but people, we will bring admonition, rebuke, correction into their life. Place in 6 1, which is how to do it gently. And 1 Thessalonians 5 14, which talks about warning those who are disobedient, but at the end it says, patient with all. Okay, gently with patience. That's how we do it. I think another principle to understand too is this an actual sin or is this a preference that I don't agree with? Sometimes we can make somebody else's preference a sin when it's really just a different way of um, doing some things. So I think that's something to keep in mind. We're rapidly <coughs> running out of time. Wanted to just briefly look at what Wayne Mack talked about restoring someone gently in his book this would not be in your notes but so in this whole idea of, of love always protects be sensitive to the feelings of other people by reluctant to do or say anything that would embarrass them do what we do what we can to make others feel at ease gentle people don't enjoy making people squirm there's a certain power involved in making people squirm sometimes that we take some delight in. But a loving person would be like Jesus with the sinning woman in John chapter 8. Uh, treat people with respect and dignity even though we disagree with them and think they're wrong. Avoid the use of intimidation 
of violence, manipulation, coerciveness, or authoritarianism. Structure our speech according to Proverbs 15, 1 and 2. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise commands knowledge, but the mouths of fools pour out folly. Approach others with the attitude of a servant rather than of a master or a lord. I like that as well. There's others in here. I follow the counsel of Proverbs 18, 13. If one gives an answer before he hears, it's his folly and shame. So until you've heard someone, uh, ask questions first. The righteous man studies before he answers. Another proverb would be other ways to go about it. Paul says that as we seek to cover the sins of erring people, we must constantly look to ourselves with the understanding that we also are susceptible to temptation. So the point is, how can we be harsh and demanding to others when we are, in, we are capable of being tempted and even yielding to temptation ourselves? So just some good principles from uh, Wayne Mack when it goes to how you cover, and if you, don't, you can't cover, you need to expose it, how to do that in a biblical way. So the last page, which has kind of a summary, I'm not going to, to go through that. You can um, go through that. We've covered 11. We've covered 12 so far, I guess. Paul says that love covers or bears all things. This means that on issues that are not sinful or harmful to the person or others or a violation of biblical principle, we will put Proverbs 19.11 into practice. We will overlook on issues that are merely a matter of preference rather than biblical principle, we will not insist that the person conform to our preferences. That's from Wayne Max, Max and Impact. So next week, we'll try to get the last three and go on down the line.